I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. And the government will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. Hello, everyone. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge um, that we are on Nungabuja. I would like to acknowledge our elders, past and present, and those who are yet to emerge, and to recognize how thankful all of us should be to be in a place that is so rich with stories, and the stories of the first peoples of this land. So, thank you all for coming. My name is Sisong Kim Simang, and I am the lead story trainer at the Center for Stories. And I have two wonderful guests with me today, whom you have already met by reputation, and now you will know them by name. We were going to um, have a vote as to who won the lip sync battle, but it's cl clear that it's me, so I, I won't embarrass them. Um, Shanali Pereira. <laughs> is a creative writer, she is a storyteller. Um, many of us know her as an incredible boxer, and she tells me she's also a backyard comedian. <laughs> she grew up in Gosnells, um, and she is studying for a human rights master's. Welcome, Shanali. <laughs> Eduardo Araujo. Eduardo Araujo, is originally from Brazil, where he trained as a lawyer. Um, he is passionate about politics, he is passionate about human rights, um, and he is now working in the pharmaceutical industry, and thank you, Eduardo, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So, we're gonna have a conversation about sexism and misogyny, surprise, surprise. Um, but we're also going to have a conversation about politics and social media and what it means that that iconic speech um, by Julia Gillard is 10 years old. So it's 10 years old now, and um, that's partly why it's come back. Um, so we're going to have social media, politics, um, leadership, misogyny, and sexism. Should be easy. <laughs> So I wanted to begin by reading um, a quote from a, a, an article that Julia Baird wrote in the New York Times in July 2013. And it says, I think it gives the background and it says a lot about the moment in which the speech was, um, was given. And then I want us to talk about it and get your responses to it. For three years and three days, for the three years and three days that Julia Gillard was Prime Minister of Australia, we debated the fit of her jackets, the size of her bottom, the exposure of her cleavage, the cut of her hair, the tone of her voice, the legitimacy of her rule, and whether she had chosen, as one member of parliament from the opposition Liberal Party put it, to be, quote, deliberately barren. The sexism was visceral and often grotesque. There were placards crying, ditch the witch, toys designed for dogs that encouraged them to chew on the fleshier parts of her anatomy, and most recently, there was a menu offering, quote, Julia Gillard Kentucky Fried Quail, small breasts, huge thighs, and a big red box, end of quote. Okay, so that's the, that's the environment and atmosphere in which uh, Julia 
Gillard gets up then and gives the speech um, because Tony Abbott has, you know, provoked her, you know, yet, yet one more time. And it was kind of instantly an iconic moment. Um, so I want to ask you two whether you remember, when you remember encountering that speech. Um, that's the first question and then I'll ask a follow-up. Um, I, I was saying to Sasanke before, I didn't realise that it was 2010 because I would have been 16 and I was in high school. Um, I do remember the speech. I remember talking about it with my friends and I remember having like quite, you know, uh, <laughs> enraged but also long kind of discussions about it with my friends. So, yeah, I think I didn't realise, like remembering it now, I don't remember it as me being 16, I remember it as me being like 18 or 19 and, you know, at a voting age. And yeah, I remember, and I remember also uh, when she came into power, all the kind of the media narrative around her and how disgusting it was. Um, yes, but it was, it brought me so much joy to rewatch it <laughs> in preparation for today. Um, and just watching Tony Abbott's face as she's delivering this, just like laying into him and he, he's copying it. He just can't, he has nowhere to go. Um, yeah, iconic, definitely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's rare to see um, an instance where a woman is laying into a man who's in a position of power and he literally has nowhere to go. Yeah. Like can't leave, <laughs> you know. You can Great. just see his head just yeah. angling down, <laughs> angling down, yeah. You weren't in the country yet, were you, Eduardo? No, so I, I've been in Australia for just over five years, so I wasn't here when uh, the speech happened. So, but I remember getting here and just wanting to understand more about Australian politics, and I went, oh, hey, they had a prime minister who was a woman, I'm just gonna check how that was, and if the headlines were just as awful when, as it was in Brazil, and turns out they all checked out, so and it was also <laughs> awful. Uh, so that, that was that, and then got in touch with the with the speech, and yeah, and that's when I yeah first heard it, and then but then again, that was uh, five years after it had happened, so I knew it was iconic already. I know yeah, there's so much resources about the speech as well, so yeah, that's when I. So it already had a context by the yeah, time you yeah, encountered. Yeah, absolutely. So, following on from that, then when was your first? encounter with misogyny? Like, when do you first remember, like, sexism? Seeing it and feeling it in your own life? Am I going first again? <laughs> um, it's hard to put an age or a particular experience to it. But I, and I've said this often, I remember as a young child, like three or four, constantly fighting to do things that my brother got to do and being like, no, I want to do that too. And why can't I climb that? Or, oh, and we were just talking about this before. Why do I have to sit with my feet together, even when I'm wearing shorts? Like it was just really annoying and constantly having to, I got a reputation for being this kid that was always sort of talking back or always fighting back. But all I was doing was saying, why can't I do the things that he's doing? Um, I think that's my earliest memory of it. And then over time, probably I have more clear memories of like, girls should do this or, um, yeah, it's interesting that my first memory is fighting against it or like questioning it as opposed to like it happening. Yeah, to me, it's like, it's already the interaction. You yeah. come into the world fighting the interaction of misogyny. Wow, yeah. yeah. 
And I think for me, of course, I wouldn't have experienced it, but I think my first memory of uh, witnessing, I think, well, I think the realization came afterwards, really, but it was when we were just talking about it, uh, when, well, uh, my household, solo mom, and then just uh, mom having to go to work, no one's uh, like available to look after her, so you guys are just gonna look after each other, so you're staying at home by yourselves, no one can know. So it's, uh, okay, the expectation, and then I realized, yeah, afterwards, it's the, yeah, sort of the expectation that people have on solo moms, what they were gonna talk about, what, what can happen to us if people realize that we're being left around devices, and, which is common practice, really, if you think about it, but it's just, it was just that no one can know, don't talk to anyone, don't answer the door, that's yeah. it. So the, the judgment of a, of a single mom who leaves her kids by themselves. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, So in the 10 years since the speech, a lot has changed, but a lot hasn't. And um, in July this year, um, AOC, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, um, sort of delivered a similarly iconic speech um, in the Senate. She had been... Um, called a fucking bitch by um, a fellow senator. And when he had been called out by the media about it because she decided not to challenge it, he then offered a non-apology. You know, we've all heard the non-apologies. So I'm sorry if I offended anybody by calling them a fucking bitch. Uh, <laughs> and, and when he apologized, he also said, I am the, f I am a mar I've been married for 45 years and I have two daughters. And so that's what outraged her, right? So, so then she gives this speech and she essentially challenges not just the notion of misogyny, but the notion of using women as the kind of barrier to excuse um, that kind of behavior. Um, so after she you know, demolished him, there was of course <laughs> um, a, a, a lot of talk about sexism in politics, but I guess the question for you guys is, um, is the problem the world more broadly, or is there a particular problem about sexism in politics? Like, what's your sense of, um, what's the bigger factor going on? Well, um, I, think, I think what's with, um well, a bit of both, I'd say, right? But then I think what's shocking with the, both of the speeches, it's sort of uh, AOC is, uh, she, this beginning of her speech is, I was gonna just leave it because this is it, this is, I've dealt with this so many times, I don't have the energy or the time to just be tackling this every time it happens. And, but then how dare you raise it to up to this level? How dare you put women in as your excuse for this awful behavior? And I think it was sort of the same with Julia Gillard because it was, uh, I copped the, everything that you just described on the daily. I'm not gonna sit here and do this every day, but how dare you say that? So it's just that thing of like, this is the usual aggression, oppression that I get. I and. I'm dealing with it the way I can, but how dare you cross that line over the and tip me over the edge, and then they just go and demolish them with the receipts <laughs> and with everything. So yeah, so I think it's yeah, I think it, it's it's a telling thing that it, it really hasn't changed because that level of oppression is there all the time. But then 
okay, if you're gonna raise it all the way to here, not today, kind of thing. Further. Yeah. Can we take it further? Yeah. Really yeah. What I loved about the AOC speech is that <clears throat> there's a part where she says, having being married doesn't make you a decent man, and having a daughter doesn't make you a good father or a decent a decent man, sorry. Being a father doesn't make you a decent man. And then she says, I'm standing up for your wife and for your daughters too and for their communities because how dare you assume that you can speak for them and that, you know, that they will automatically just sort of fall behind you in the priority of, like, I don't know, who, who's, who gets respected more, etc. Um, it's interesting thinking about, like, has the world changed or has... Um, has the political kind of arena changed? And I think the world has definitely, well, I'd, I hope <laughs> the world has changed. It feels like it's changed, at least in terms of how, um, how much you can get away with, with because of social media and things like that. But I also feel like um, it hasn't changed when you look at how many women are in power in like politics and how many women drop out super fast because imagine having to deal with that kind of toxicity on a daily basis um and you know the political arena is one male dominated arena but there are many industries where they're kind of male dominated industries and i feel that you see this trend of women just not being able to stick out stick it out because it's not a very healthy it's not healthy at all it's it's not healthy for men but it's also like double that sense of toxicity for women and, um, you know, people of other genders. So it's like, um, yeah, when I look at the 10 years that's been, I don't see, I see Jacinta Ardern and I see AOC. I, but I also see the women who ran for president in America who got absolutely like, you know, um, demolished or destroyed and yeah, the way that you have to be strategic about bringing women into politics. And it's interesting. Like, I, I'm very curious about how the world will go in the next 10 years um, coming up because I feel like in terms of the political arena, it hasn't changed. We still have the same kind of toxic mm -hmm. yeah, environment. And yet if you look in other places, if you look um, at a whole bunch of ways that um, I think young women interact, the levels of confidence, um, the ability for mainstream conversation to um, tackle the Me Too movement. Like, there's all this stuff that um, wasn't there 10 years ago when Julia Gillard, you know, made that speech. And so something's happening, right? Something else is, is happening. And perhaps politics is, is um, very slow to follow. Um, and one of the things that's happening is um, social media. Um, and part of why you know, we started the way that we did in addition to just having a bit of fun and being ridiculous people <laughs> is, is, um, is TikTok. And, and Eduardo, I know that you are a, um, a fan. Uh, so let's talk about TikTok and social media and people in their 20s and younger uh, and what it means. Like, you know, because as a, as a mother of now someone who's about to be a teenager, I am petrified about their use of social media. Um, and what we've been taught as parents is like, 
it's really bad for their body image, you know, don't, you know, don't let them on it. And yet, like, this Julia Gillard speech has gone viral because of TikTok. So walk, walk us through a little bit of your thoughts about this whole question of social media and TikTok in particular and what it, what it can and can, what its limits and possibilities are. Right. Um, well, I think... Um, well, I think in terms of uh, TikTok and what it does in terms of... I, I think that... Initially, the, the way that it's um, the reach and the range of, of TikTok happens, because if you're on other type of social media like uh, Twitter and Facebook, you, to, to a certain extent, you have to uh, know who to follow. You have to have the interaction. Where TikTok, you log in, you don't know anything. There, you're just bombarded with with whatever comes up, right? So as you engage, or as things get engaged by other people, that would just go, gets thrown in on your screen. So it's more of a broadcasting than a I suppose, uh, interactive tool, really. So I think in terms of uh, Twitter and Facebook can be more interactive, where um, TikTok is more on the go, a lot more viral potential, a lot, a lot like that. And it, it would also just feeds you what, you what you like. So so it feeds you what you like, but you don't have to put anything out. You just have to watch it. You, you, and it you can just watch it. what you like. <laughs> Because, yeah, so for, yeah, because what you, if you just watched that for one second and went off, you, you, that's not interesting. Uh, so, so the that's algorithm not, yeah. won't give it back to you. Yeah, so but if it's tracking your eyes and it knows that you yeah. keep watching particular things. Then that's, the, then that's that. Oh. And I think, I think it works as a, a thing, something to also uh, bring your, uh, your collectives together, right? So if you, in terms of political engagement, it, you will find your crowd eventually. You will find your your creators and all that. And I think as a as a tool, perhaps, because I think there's a clear intersection of uh, age in TikTok, and that's one of the things that we were discussing earlier about the the engagement and and, and politics, right? Because I think when you think of now and you think of for example, 14 year olds who would be on TikTok and they would be exposed to let's say, environment issue, environmental issues, gender issues, all that, and, well, and really bombarded, right, if, they, if they're on there. Whereas if I think of, well, any other previous generations at 14, perhaps that awareness of yeah. any political, if it's formal politics or informal politics, uh, well, that is different, but there is some political load there, and, I, and that is important, that is a, a, a force, I suppose. Yeah, and so they have access to information and analysis and thinking long before they can actually vote. Yes, and I think that's, that's what's important for formal poll. Because I think more than thinking this TikTok and social media, well, this TikTok and all the new social media, let's say, have a political impact, I think it's more about can formal politics understand that? Because it's also disenfranchised, right? Because, okay, 14-year-olds will eventually vote. If they, have no, if they know about gender issues for this long, they will be voting in this many years' time, right? And also the fact that uh, they disenfranchise people. So immigrants, like we cannot vote until we have citizenship, but we are engaging digitally, we are engaging with content, and if we hang around long enough, we will vote. vote. So you have to understand how that dynamic works. So to think about it as a softening ground, as, a, as, a, as another opportunity to influence and not think as, about voting as the only way. Yeah. yeah. Shanali, what's your relationship like with... I'm not on TikTok, so I am... 
the only, well, not the only one, but one of my friends, um, I think I'm like just a little too old, maybe. I don't know. Um, I'm on Instagram and that's, I definitely do see and use Instagram in very political ways. Um, but what I've been reflecting on, even with Instagram, is that in terms of political engagement, like with this, with this little clip, the Julia Gillard speech, it's just the first what, 30 seconds of her speech. And I wonder how many of those people on TikTok who did the revival listened to the whole speech or understood the context in which it was given. Um, you know, so it's, it, it also, I'm a bit, I guess, critical, or I'm, I'm more reflective now of the algorithm feeding me just what I want to hear. And I wonder if, if we aren't able to see the big picture and if we're not able to understand the kind of context around which speeches are delivered. Even just seeing Tony Abbott's face as that speech is delivered, that's an important context, you know? And if we're only just hearing like the, the snazzy, like fun words, is that really political engagement? Um, and, you know, but the, and the scary thing is that people do think it is, or they can, they kind of jump, and not just, I'm definitely not just talking about kids here, I'm talking about adults as well. Um, they jump to kind of making these statements or being really fierce in their political arguments without any kind of context around what they're saying. So I don't think that's very helpful. Um, but I do think that social media is changing the game in terms of who gets to speak and how we speak. And I think it's also bringing the politics back into the creative, because you get a lot of artists on social media. Um, you get a lot of, uh, you know, video videographers or YouTubers or just entertainers. Everyone's kind of thinking in terms of like being fun and entertaining, um, but we're being political with it too. So I love that and I think that's great. So yeah, it's a bit of both. And I was gonna say on on that as well. The yeah, yeah, the negative aspect is so huge and yeah, scary too. Because it's um, yeah, that side of spreading misinformation is so easy. And at the same time, it's just snippets. You just get one part here, one part here, one part, and you're just putting your own, um, creating your own idea of, of what that issue is, right? But the potential of misinformation is so huge. And also that feeling of the bubble within the bubble, because you're just, um, you're just engaging with what you, you really are interested in, interested in and, what, and people who agree with you. And then do you, do you feel like that's enough? And then engaging in, in formally in politics and making that extra step for, for uh, change in the real world, yeah. does that keep you from doing that? Yeah. And that's a, a But here's thing. the thing, right? How many of us actually watch live parliament sittings? <laughs> like, would you? Oh, I would. <laughs> I'd be bored to death, you know? So it's like, what's your... What's your alternative? The news? The news also is like a little marketing packaged. Here's the most exciting thing, the most controversial thing that happened in Parliament today. So, yeah, it's not... I think that social media has... It's almost like it's come up out of necessity in some ways because people are like, I don't want to watch 45 minutes of people, you know, debating uh, in words that I don't understand. Like, that's, that's not fun. Um, I learn more this way. <laughs> but I am struck in all these conversations about how much, how important it is to think about um, how things interact with one another. So it's about the simul, I never know how to say this word, simultaneity of it. 
So it is both that people are disillusioned with formal politics, so democracy, the sense that democracy is broken, on the one hand, and at the same time we have the rise of social media and people are really enamored of a quick take, a hot take on Twitter or a little soundbite because it is interesting. And so while we lose our attention span, our, our attention span is diminishing at the exact same time that we need to have a longer attention span in order to fix a democracy, a democratic process that requires you to think over the long term, to act slowly, to invest time, to build relationships, like all that boring stuff that is so untweetable, right? So I think it's, uh, what's interesting is that these two things are happening at the same time and I do worry about a, um, a generation that is raised um, um, wanting quick results when what in fact makes change is you know, doing stuff over the long haul. But I definitely sound like my age. And I would love to open up for a couple of questions or if people want to make comments um, you know, as we, before, we, before we round up. And actually before we do that, I forgot to say thank you to our sponsors. <laughs> so a word from our sponsors while you... <laughs> I did it on purpose. I would like to say a big thank you to the city of Perth because without them, we would not be meeting here for free. Um, Aspen Corporate Financial Planning, thank you so much. Um, Rayner Real Estate and Herbert Smith Freehills. Those are our sponsors. Now that we're back from commercial break. <laughs> and of course, we wouldn't be anywhere without Dandy Barber Co. <laughs> Did anyone want to make a comment or an input or ask a question or just be that person? I didn't want to put my hand up when you asked who watched Parliament questions. <laughs> I was actually paid to be, I was a political advisor to um, a woman that became our foreign minister, so Julie Bishop. Yeah. Um, and I came to work for her just after, so it was the, the Rudd, Gillard, Rudd era, um, mm. and I had to work under Tony Abbott, which was just appalling to me. Yeah, totally. And I think when what you were saying before, Sisonke, I think the other thing that I wanted to that kind of came up for me is social media engagement in like when you engage with politics via social media you build relationships you get to talk to people who might you know be feeling the same things that you're feeling whereas I don't think you at least in my experience um, I started voting when Facebook was a thing but Instagram wasn't quite a thing and I don't remember having like a community of people behind me when I was going in to vote. It was a very individual, solo. Uh, yeah, maybe I got to talk to my friends, but it wasn't like, you know, you didn't really have a community behind you. You didn't have relationships behind your activism or like voting wasn't an act of activism. Whereas if you've been on Instagram uh, for the past few years, uh, for past few months with the US election happening, um, every single creator has, well, at least on the, the kind of leftist um, spectrum has been posting about go out and vote. So, you know, like you really see these communities building around political action, which um, voting, at least for my generation, wasn't really it didn't really give that to you. So 
um, yeah, I think that's, it's also like people engaging with politics in a more related way. Interesting. I mean, I do, I think the point about, uh, which is why I, I love that Julia Gillard used the, you know, was so precise about the language of misogyny because it's a system and women operate inside it in the same way that men do, um, uh, you know, far too often. Um, and so, yes, you do see, because, because formal politics is crap and, and the rewards, I don't need to tell you that, the rewards, those who get rewarded are those who uh, operate according to the way the system works best. Any, anyone else want to say? We've got like five minutes left, or less than five minutes to wrap, to wrap the conversation. Yes, Lisa. I wonder if we'll see a reverse and how that will play out. If we've got politicians' speeches that are going viral, if we'll start seeing politicians having more inflammatory speeches to get that virility so they get that voting base, and how that would play out in when you're saying what we need is measured long-term response, which is quite boring, and we see them playing the highest ticket that might come from our own worst enemy. Mm, you, you have a bit of an American accent, and I think there's a politician who plays to populist... <laughs> oh no, they used to be. <laughs> Did you want to say something in um, response to that? Yeah, because I think that um, when we were talking uh, the other day about pop culture and, well, and politics, um, how pop culture relates to to politics and all that and it's interesting to see how uh, we have political figures that are now pop culture icons when you think of AOC when you yeah so we, we have those uh, people out and, and that's interesting on one way but then then again would that maneuver the whole conversation in a way that it's completely down to 130 characters if, if that's one thing right uh, but then again, there is power in having a leader, someone to look up to. And so I, I think it's, yeah, it goes about how, um, I think not to dismiss uh, pop, pop culture all in one go, because I think it serves sort of two purposes, right? I think it's a mirror of what we're uh, experiencing now, but it also has the power to create a bit more and just push it a little bit more in terms of creators and in terms of, uh, well, in terms of, yeah, arts really. So um, I think, yeah, sort of a, double-edged sword, really, but I, I see the value in having these uh, strong figures that are uh, popping at all, at all times. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I can't decide if it, it would be a good thing or a bad thing. Like, I feel I'm, I'm excited by the idea of um, of like politicians having to do TikTok uh, reels <laughs> in Parliament, like that would be great. But I think uh, coming back to something that I said at the start, I think our biggest um, worry is the lack of lack of um, kind of broad thinking when it comes to looking at political situations, and we need at least in my opinion, we need to solve the kind of problems we're facing right now. We actually need diverse opinions and we need people to be able to look at it in an analytical way rather than in just this one-sided pushing just their agenda way, which um, if the algorithm's just choosing like what you want to see and just feeding your kind of you know bias, um, I don't think that's just for the world. I don't think it'll do much. So um, as fun as it might be. But you know, like who knows? This, yeah, it's a uh, 2021. Like, what's that gonna be like? Oh, God. <laughs> God help us. It is. Um, 
It's 5.45 and so we, we have to wrap up. I feel like it's been a great meandery kind of conversation that's touched on lots of, uh, lots of things. I, I think, you know, f for me, what, has, what is um, interesting about 2020 and politics and these questions about where, where we go from here has been, um, you know, when you were saying, Shanali, earlier that uh, the, the notion of voting as activism, you know, in some ways, this year has taught us how important it is for voting not to be activism, for voting to be a civic duty. And I think one of the big winners of this year in terms of democracy has been understanding how ordinary it is in Australia to be able to um, exercise your right to vote by being forced to vote. Yeah. How important that is when it comes to times of crisis because you actually ultimately can trust your leaders even though even if you don't like everything they do all the time there is a measure of trust that's built into a system and i think that speaks very much to this question about whether we're interested and invested in charismatic leaders or whether we're invested in institutions and the julia gillard moment is you know really wonderful and iconic because you need charismatic moments but i think ultimately we could use less charisma and more strategy and focus. And so what I hope we don't get is a bunch of charismatic women who the world is handed over to just as we're all about to die of climate change. On that note, thank you everyone for participating. Thank you for my guests and thanks again to our wonderful sponsors. The Center for Stories would like to acknowledge our generous sponsors, the City of Perth, Rainer Real Estate, Aspen Corporate Financial Planning and Herbert Smith Freehills.